What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Joining me today is Natalie Nagel, the CEO of a company called Wildbit. A lot of people talk about building a sustainable business nowadays, but Natalie is one of the few who has already done it. Wildbit is an 18-year-old software company. It's been around for a long time. It shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. They have 30 employees. They're very profitable. They're generating many millions of dollars per year in revenue. And the best part is that it is completely bootstrapped. Natalie has never raised a dime from investors, which means that she and her co-founder slash husband, Chris, control everything. They get to run their company however they want. Nobody can tell them not to do something. And as a result, they made a lot of very interesting choices that I'm excited to talk about. So Natalie, welcome to the Indie Actors Podcast. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Cortland. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited to have you here. There's so much to talk about with Wildbit. You guys have transitioned from being a consulting company to a product company. You've released multiple products, not just one. Some of your products have grown to millions of dollars in revenue. Some of your products have failed and you pulled the plug on them and shut them down. You've even spun off a product and sold it to another company. You've hired, I'm sure you fired. The list just goes on. You're running this company as a husband and wife team, which is fascinating to me. You're doing the whole remote work thing and you've been doing it since 2000, way before it was cool. You have a 32-hour work week. Uh, you guys have done pretty much everything. <laughs> You make it sound so good. It uh. is good. It's great. This is all great stuff. It's so hard for me to even know where to start. What's something that you guys haven't done as a company these past 18 years that you'd be excited to do at some point in the future? Oh, there's so much, man. Um, one of the things that I'm super excited to, you know, you're a small company and we are really limited in resources to some degree. And one thing I think we can get much better at is providing opportunities for individual growth inside the organization and not necessarily kind of like encouraging to some degree people to find jobs elsewhere because we don't have those opportunities inside. So we have this like crazy idea that what I'm calling Wildbit 3.0, which is to kind of re-envision the purpose of our profits to really be focused on how can Wildbit's profits help grow every individual in the organization, whether that's in their current careers or, you know, why do we have to only build software? Why can't we build something else? You know, so I have, we, we have crazy ideas, but that's really, I really want to figure out a way. And this is where we're moving towards is, is becoming a little bit bigger just so that we have more opportunities for people to grow and, you know, having leadership opportunities and that kind of thing. That's a, that's a big one on the radar right now that I'm super excited about. Oh, that's so cool. I love hearing about founders and companies like you who are doing this wild experimentation with your businesses. Because I think we haven't reached any sort of peak in terms of what a company can look like and how it functions. There's still a lot of discovery left to go. And people like you are blazing this trail that I think others are afraid to do because it just seems risky. And that's not a dig on them. I think it's because you've built something that's truly self-sustaining. And so you've created almost a safe space for you guys to do this kind of experimentation. Yeah, I think there should be as many unique businesses as there are unique people right, who run them because in all honesty, like entrepreneurs are, 
are doing it or should be doing it for themselves, right? Because they have some crazy itch. Chris and I have always looked at it and said, like, well, how do we want to run this business? Because I don't think there should be rules. We're not in medicine or accounting where there's real rules to follow. There's no rules here. And so we get to kind of invent them however we want, starting from how big do we want to grow and how fast do we want to grow and, you know, and, and reaching all the way into, you know, what does that mean in terms of what we build and for how long and, you know, kind of all of that stuff. I, I think that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur is getting to be really thoughtful around the whys, around everything, not just the products and how they grow, but how you build an organization. So let's take this to an extreme. Imagine you're in some sort of dream world, Natalie, where pretty much everything you try works out okay. You can just go to town making changes to your company and its culture and process is totally risk-free. What are some of the unconventional changes that you would make? I really want to be able to create a space inside of Wildbit where people can play in areas that aren't necessarily just around their craft, right? Like software development, design, that kind of thing. I would love to make Wildbit a home where our team gets to spend that time that they're, you know, working and getting paid, pushing themselves past their comfort zones in in various ways. And I know that that's not for everyone, but there's a lot of people, especially, you know, they get attracted to Wild, but as a company who are creatives, they're deep thinkers, they're interested in a lot of things, interested in exploring a lot of things. And, you know, maybe it's because the older I get, the more I realize, you know, our time is limited and valuable. And a lot of times, if you're working all the time on one thing, by the time you get home, your your free time doesn't really support some of those hobbies and, and creative things. And so I'd love to be able to experiment and also kind of see like, what can I do for Wildbit? You know, maybe Wildbit. What if we made soap? Why not? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Soap? Like, I don't know. I, I mean, why not? Or, you know, what I told the team is like, Chris and I always dreamed of running a hotel one day. Like, why can't it be a Wildbit hotel? I mean, I don't know. I mean, some of the stuff's probably batshit crazy. I don't know. I would love for us to be so profitable and have created a syst- the systems in place to support our customers so well that we have the extra space. You know, because that's what it comes down to. Our customers are first, right? In terms of like, that's our job is to support them to make sure that they are provided the service that they have come to love from us and that, that, that we, we're delivering on our promises. But how can I grow that in a way that we can be overly profitable, so to speak, is that a thing, you know, but have enough fat in the profits so that we can experiment and play. My dream, I think for Chris and I is like that Wildbit is just a creative space for, for people. You know, we have to be profitable for that to happen because you got to pay with it somehow, but I want it to be a creative space. I want to be able to give people opportunities to to explore their themselves and what they're capable of and how, how big they can make themselves, you know, like really push people. I think that would be really great. This is so cool. It's like you've created your own playground really slash, I don't know. Yeah, like man, that's it. Utopian society. <laughs> no, it's not utopia. Come on. It's not utopia. You know what? I'm much better at this stuff than I am as a business person, which is a problem, right? I've been, I've been mulling on this thing where like the difference between an entrepreneur and a business person, I'm not the only first person to call that out, obviously, but it's just been, it's been weighing on me because the entrepreneur stuff comes easy to me, you know, being crazy and doing whatever the hell I want and really pushing ourselves to, to think why. Some of the business person stuff, I envy. I mean, there's some brilliant business people out there that I know or that we all know that I'm just like, wow, you totally get it. 
And I wish I was better at that. <laughs> You've built a company that is by all definitions, super successful. The vast majority of entrepreneurs and business people on earth will look up to what you've done and see you as an example that they want to follow. Do you feel like an expert? There are certain things I think I'm definitely an expert on. I mean, I'm, I, I think I feel pretty confident with what we've learned and what we've discovered and kind of how we, how we build team and build culture, right? And really just intentionally supporting human beings who work in an organization. I think I'm really confident in that. If you came and asked me, hey, help me figure out how to grow another business from scratch, I would not. I still look at that stuff as indiv- you know, a lot, a, a series of really fortunate events that kind of <laughs> got pieced together. I mean, truthfully, no, like I'm surrounded by brilliant people who support me and Chris in building something great. We provide as much as we can of ourselves to them. And in return, we build brilliant products, right? I mean, that I can replicate. But if you ask me for like marketing tactics or how to best monetize or any of that stuff, man, it is so over my head. And yeah, I'm trying to get better at it. I've you know, I hired a, my first director of finance and she's brilliant and I wouldn't, I don't know how I lived without her and she's helping me learn that stuff. And, but I just think that our skill set. I mean, we build great product. Chris is an incredibly smart technologist who really understands product and, and all that stuff. But me personally, man, I'm just not a business person from that perspective. Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that we're definitely going to talk about a lot of the culture, people, that realm that you're comfortable in. The bad news is I'm still going to ask you marketing and growth <laughs> and, and early stage strategy questions. I know, I know. No, you should make me, make me think about it. You should, you should. No, I actually, I think about that all the time because that's my, that's my soft spot or my weak spot, right? So you can divide up Wildbit as a company into kind of two phases, the consulting phase of your business. And then about 10-ish years ago, you transitioned into being a product-focused business. Is that accurate? Yes. I don't know very much about the first phase of Wildbit. What's the story there? How did you guys get started and eventually become a product business? Yeah. I mean, so Chris and I run the business together. It's an 18-year-old company that he started uh, when he was like 19, 20 years old. And we've been doing it together for 15 years. And so he started it as brochureware, nightlife, clubs, bars, restaurants kind of business. Lots of flash. I don't know if people still know what Flash is. I don't know. You've young listeners who don't know that anymore. They might not. But uh, I know. Uh, look it up. It's brilliant. And so doing a lot of that kind of work uh, that slowly transitioned in, you know, and then we started working. So the first couple of years we was doing that, we met, started dating very quickly. I started to kind of run whatever part of the business I could to help him. So QuickBooks, invoicing, looking through our RFPs, that kind of thing. I was in college. And then we started transitioning into more robust client services work. We actually ended up doing a lot of social networks and we're pretty big on that and kind of had a, had a reputation for building really great, designing really great social networks with our customers. In that time, we built our actually very first product, which was called Newsberry. Uh, it was an email marketing service. And the idea was this was 2004 where there really wasn't anything. And our customers at the time needed to send emails. And Chris had this great idea. He's like, well, we can build something that they can use. So he went to those cust- a couple customers and said, could you invest, quote unquote, in this product? I forget what it, the amount. I don't want to lie. Like It was a few thousand bucks, I think. And you can use it for free forever. 
and we'll build it, but we'll be able to sell it for other customers. And that was like the, how, how Newsberry was born. I, I still think that was so smart. Um, and so he had this idea. So we built Newsberry and it was always a side project, you know, like we, all our money came from client services. And so we ran Newsberry on the side. It actually made money. Uh, when we shut it down, it was profitable and making a few hundred thousand dollars a year. I think it wasn't like, it wasn't insignificant. And then we just continued to do client services work. So we got into kind of these bigger projects. And at that time, Chris was managing our subversion servers. Subversion is pre-Git. And so he's managing our subversion servers. And, you know, they were all self-hosted and all this stuff. And you know, he was like, well, why can't we build something that'll run this instead? That, that can run, that, that can host it, that we can run so that we can manage a lot of things like user permissions and, and just collaboration and all that kind of stuff. So he had the idea for Beanstalk and he went to our bunch of our friends and he was like, would you guys let me store your source code and you can get this like great UI and be able to, and they were like, you're crazy. I would never give you my source code. That's ridiculous. And he didn't listen to them. And so they built it anyway. (laughs) And we kind of built it in a way where it was, you know, we had a small team doing client services work and we kind of said like, let's throw a couple weeks at it. So we were billing in weekly iterations. So every time we didn't bill and worked on Beanstalk or every time we worked on Beanstalk, we weren't billing, right? So these were like significant amounts of money for us. So eventually like, we built Beanstalk, it picked up, people really loved it, launched it in beta and committed a full-time person to it. And that's the only way we actually got out of consulting. And I, that's my only one recommendation every time somebody asks how you make the transition, it was commit the resource. Because once it costs you money, you're going to push yourself to really make it a success. So we committed a, a full-time person and it picked up. And you know, this was 2007, 2008. The world was a very different place back then. Apps were launching weekly, monthly, maybe not hourly by the minute, you know, we had no product hunt back then. It got picked up. There was a lot of traction on it. And so we got really addicted to the product life, you know, and committed to being a product company. But to do that, we knew we didn't want to fire anybody. So we said, all right, well, let's, we had some, you know, we had some recurring revenue. So we had a kind of a a view of where we were going to get at a certain point. And we said, all right, we are not going to stop client services until we can cover everybody's salary. And so we waited about a year, maybe a little bit less than that, until Beanstalk was making enough money to cover all the revenue we, or all the salaries of the rest of the team who was doing consulting work. And we shut it down. I borrowed forty grand from Chris's dad. I think it was forty, basically to just sit in a bank account for my worst case scenario. Something happens and I have to pay salary, and I paid him back very quickly on that. And then we just we stopped taking we we closed off our biggest project and that was it. And then, you know, fast forward, we shut down Newsberry and we can talk about that if you want, but we shut down Newsberry because we wanted to focus and we realized that we were not good at, we were not good marketers. So we didn't really understand the audience and it was just a huge distraction. So we shut it down and then became kind of a product company from there. And that's, and ever since, you know, kind of been doing the same thing. You mentioned that you got addicted to the product life. What are some of the biggest day-to-day differences in your life as a founder between running a product company and running a consulting company? And did you anticipate those differences? And is that what drove you to make the transition? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot. We were extremely lucky with clients who we adored and work that was very challenging and very interesting, but yet it's not your work, right? And so when you do client work, it's it's tricky when you fall in love with something and then it gets kind of taken away from you. Or on the flip side, you 
see it differently. You might not be right, right? Or you've been wrong, but you see it differently and you really want to push for that change, but you can't because that's not really, you know, it's not your, it's not your risk, right? It's somebody else's risk. And so I think in, in, in running Beanstalk in parallel with doing client work, we really just got addicted to being able to take those risks, to experiment on our own and to fail because they were our decisions. I think that was a really big one. And the other obvious one is control over our time, our, our, our revenue to some degree, because we weren't chasing RFPs and the next project, and the next project. Although I always say that early on, there were days when I was like, I really want more money. Like I got to grow faster and there's no way to do it. Where when it was client work, I could be like, all right, let's go, let's go drum up some work. You know, let's go find a project. And, you know, it's, it's stressful, but you can almost always find a project. You can't really be like, hey, this month in, in SaaS, I'd like to grow an extra $30,000. So thanks. <laughs> you know, it's just not how it works. You mentioned that you shut down Newsberry in part because you wanted to focus, but in part because you guys had this realization that marketing is not your strong suit. Yet at the same time, you were running Beanstalk, and it seems that that was successful from the early days, what's the story behind how you launched Beanstalk and got your first users with it? So 2008 was a very different time to launch product. And it was all word of mouth. And to this day, I'm telling you that the only good marketing that we do is word of mouth. It's just build great product. And that's we're, we're always trying to get better at it. But we're not, we're not, it's not in our DNA, Chris and I. We launched Beanstalk to a bunch of friends who you know, Twitter was new, <laughs> who could tweet and people would hear. And we did a, uh, integrations with other apps. We did an integration with Basecamp and they, they blogged about it, you know, because it was valuable to their customers. And, you know, there was a nice reciprocal relationship there. That Basecamp blog post was a huge driver of traffic for us for years to come. It's just a very different ecosystem. I could never replicate ever again. It was just, you know, like the timing was different. There wasn't, a, there was nothing else out there to even compete with. There was CVS dude, which was, you know, for CVS, which is even older than Subversion. So it was just a really natural, hey, have you seen this thing? I'm using this thing called Beanstalk, you know, and people just kept talking about it and sharing and talking and sharing. And it actually, in, in hindsight, it grew really fast for what it was and, and our price point. It grew super fast. So what is Beanstalk exactly? And who are these people using it and talking about it? Beanstalk is a collaboration platform for software developer teams. It's hosted Git with deployments and project management built in. It was what today is mostly GitHub, right? We were doing that in 2008, it was, but it was subversion, which was the earlier kind of version control system of choice. And those first customers were software developers, you know, people building for the web, but in 2008. So it's like early web apps, lots of Rails, uh, lots of Rails projects, some of the most beloved projects back then, you know, were all using Beanstalk because it was like a hosted, elegant way of collaborating on code together, you know, and, and, and working together. And you didn't really have a lot of options back then. It's funny, you're talking about Rails, you're talking about Beanstalk being featured on Basecamp's blog back in 2007, 2008. I don't exactly remember that post, but I guarantee you I read it because back then I was reading everything on Basecamp's blog. Those guys were so inspirational to me. Were they inspirational to you? They sort of had the same model you had of going from a consulting company to a product company. Oh, absolutely. That's the dream, right? I mean, everything that they, everything that Jason Fried and DHH wrote about back then was gospel. 
they showed a way for introverted engineers to build a successful business. I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying as, as, as an alternative to build a business that required no sales, no marketing, theoretically. You didn't really have to talk to your customers. You could build great software. You could kind of run your run the show and do it in a way that was meaningful. I mean, today it's, I know a lot of us take it for granted. Back then we would tell people what we were doing and they thought that was insane. You get people to put their credit cards in and they pay you every month and you don't even know who they are. You've never talked to them. They're like, yep. You've no sales team? None. Do you even know who they are? I said, I have no idea. We have all these huge brands using us. I mean, huge. The, the, we, we, there was a point where we had like, you know, some of the most beloved brands using us. And we didn't even have a lawyer to sign a separate agreement. <laughs> it was a terms of service checkbox. You know, it's it it was a it was tremendous what base what thirty seven signals at the time showed the way and 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 you know to grab onto that and really run with it was uh, we you know we owe them everything we would not we would not have built a business had it not been for them and to some degree that's probably not. You know, we probably follow them for too long because if you know, Jason Fried is an incredible marketer and we aren't that. So had we known that sooner, we would have like had to adjust our, our strategy a little bit and be like, oh, there's this other piece of it too. You know, it's not just happening by accident. You kind of have some, to do some other work. And we only picked up on the parts that we wanted to, not the other parts. <laughs> you talk about, you know, not really talking to your customers, not being good at the marketing stuff. And your product spreading via word of mouth, which really is the dream. If people are just talking about your product and sort of spreading it for you. Yeah. Is that still the case with Beanstalk today? If, if the way no. Is- no. So we're, bu- we're building a new product that we, um, uh, if you build it, they will come as a very tricky strategy nowadays. And uh, we did not, we got to a point with Beanstalk where we were starting to compete on features or with marketing dollars. You know, because we we got to a point where GitHub was huge, Bitbucket and GitLab, you know, and it's the four of us and we're the tiniest of the tiny, right? And there's all faults of our own, right? We didn't innovate. We didn't pay attention to the market. There's all kinds of things. And so about four years ago, we actually sat down and said, what do we want to do? Because we have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of users and it's very profitable and it makes us a lot of money, but we want to do something different. And how do we want to compete? What do we want to do? Do we want to compete on adding new features? Do we want to compete on marketing dollars? You know, should we get a loan and just try to like get the brand out there more? What do we want to do? And we decided that we wanted to have a chance to rethink the problem we were solving. At that point, we had been running Beanstalk for, I guess, eight years. And uh, we really just sat down and said, if we started over knowing what we know today, what would we build, right? Because the value proposition changed drastically from what we built. And we had this existing product used by so many people. We couldn't really just kind of rip the rug right under them. We really wanted to rethink the problem. And so we decided to build something completely from scratch. And that's Conveyor, which we launched actually to the public two weeks ago, I guess, which is crazy. Congratulations. Um, Thanks. Four years to a minimally viable product. It's pretty great. It's been an incredibly humbling journey to launch another product, but we just kind of Beanstalk is supported and maintained, but we are not doing active development on it because everybody's focused on that team on Conveyor. And it's a totally reimagined. It's actually a desktop client with the hosting, uh, lots of project management built in. It's a really, it's, I think it's a really special 
really, really special product. We have a ton of work to do. Like the feedback has been like, this is great. And please do all of these 35 things. So we're, you know, really focused on, and which is what we wanted. We wanted that feedback so we can really just figure out which direction we, we need to go in with actual humans, not ourselves in a vacuum. And so, you know, that's got a lot of work to do, but I think it's going to be really special. And that's, you know, what we hope will be the next version of Beanstalk. So between Beanstalk and your new product, Conveyor, you also launched a couple other products, which did very well. Do you feel like having multiple successes under your belt made you more nervous or worried about building a totally new thing? It's like, you know what I've been writing for the last three days? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it took us four years to launch Conveyor. So we have Postmark, right, which is hugely successful, growing really fast. Most of our team is on that. And when you have this kind of mature, you've been running mature products for so long, you really lose the sense of scrappiness. And my, you know, we push for it so hard, but we're just not used to being scrappy anymore. You know, we're still scrappy in a lot of ways, but our polish, our fine detail, our, you know, our QA process, all of that is just really geared towards sophisticated products with customers. And, and when you're building something new, you kind of need to be a little rough around the edges. I'm not saying minimally viable, right? I'm not saying that the thing barely works, but you know, I, we wanted something that was fast and we had definitely had some non-starters, right? But I think it took us a while because we really nitpicked probably the wrong things just because of what we're used to. And that, I think, God, that's so hard. It's so, so hard to look at something and say, are we overthinking this? Should we have scaled back three revisions ago? You know, should we have focused? Do we need to be that fast, right? Do we need to be that available? Do we need to fix all of these bugs? You know, really narrowing in on what a true first version of something is was really hard for us. I see a lot of this difference between being small and scrappy and being a little bit more refined and mature with my job because I run Andy Hackers. It's a two-person quote unquote company, which is me and my brother inside of Stripe, which is this behemoth with 1600 mm-hmm. people. And the differences are just astounding. Is there a certain inflection point with all of these products with Postmark and Beanstalk where you lose the scrappiness and become more refined? Is it a revenue milestone? Is it the number of team members? Is it, What causes that transition? Yeah, I think for us, I don't know. It's definitely not revenue. I think for us, well, everybody defines that differently for, in terms of like what scrappy means. We've always felt that our promise to the customer was that they will not test our code. So that was always a very big kind of, once you have paying customers, you you deliver on the promise. That's always been our thing. And so we've always had QA as part of our process. We don't ship anything without QA. We, you know, we have new people starting on the team and support and stuff like that. And they're always shocked by how few bugs we have. We have plenty of bugs, but how few bugs we have compared to other apps because we just, we overtest everything. But that's definitely a philosophical thing where I want our customers to feel like we've done all the due diligence. And by the time it's in their hands, it's pretty polished. The part where I wish we had done it differently and what we did with DeployBot and other things was we really had a better sense of what the core thing was, you know, the core, the core value proposition was, and because web apps are just so much easier to build than desktop apps, especially for an inexperienced team who's never built a desktop app, you know, it was hard to really figure out how to, how to, how to stop that process, you know, how to, how to really 
say, this is the thing that we're building. And this is all we need to be building for now. Let's get some feedback in. And I think, you know, I think the other part truly, Cortland, if I'm honest, is like we had too big of a team on conveyor for a while. You know, some of these things, most of the time you start one or two, you know, two people, three people hacking away on stuff. I think that's a big one. I think once your team probably gets bigger, you have more experts, so to speak, and less generalists and all these things, you can, you start to kind of refine the process as you go. Conveyors always had a large team. I mean, it started with like two people, but it kind of kept ballooning and then shrinking and then ballooning again and shrink, you know. And so the more people you have, the more overhead you have, the more opinions and they're all good opinions and who picks and how do you make decisions and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's probably some combination of both. I don't know if I answered that in a, in a distinct enough way, but I don't know that I have like a specific, you hit a million dollars, you just, you stop being scrappy milestone there. Yeah. I don't know that there is a distinctive answer, a distinctive point between being scrappy and not being scrappy anymore. I just get to ask bullshit questions like that as a podcaster. No, I mean, I think about it all the time because it took us four years to get here. And I'm telling you here, I keep telling the team, we literally just got to the starting line. Like we have so much work to do, which is okay. I'm excited. And we're thankfully profitable. I don't have anybody to answer to, but you know, I, uh, I definitely, I struggle with that. Should we have shifted a year ago? Well, you guys have never really struck me as a company that's been in any sort of extreme rush. For example, you have, a 32-hour work week at Wildbit. That's crazy. What's the story behind making that decision? You've been doing it for almost two years now, I think. Yeah. So we, uh, May of, of 20, what's it's 19, it's May of 2017, we started this experiment with a four-day, 32-hour work week based on, actually based on a book on deep work by Cal Newport in which Cal Newport talks about the brain's capacity for meaningful work, like like your unique ability work, right? The thing that we all get paid to do. And, you know, the capacity that they're saying when they study the brain is four hours a day. And so we all said, well, okay, well, then what are we doing for 40 hours a week? If it's, you know, four times five is 20, (laughs) what's the rest of the time being taken up with? And Wildbit's always been a place that's obsessed with understanding how to maximize focus work because we just truly believe that in order to achieve fulfillment in your career, you need to be able to actually do the thing that you're supposed to do. And so we've just, Oh, you know, we've always had closed offices, private offices. We, you know, we've have all these rules around Slack and how you use, you know, uh, asynchronous communication, all these things just focus, uh, focused on focus. And so when we, it was just an opportunity to experiment a little more and say, okay, well, if we can do four hours a day, then we could probably cut that down to four days a week and let's see what we can get rid of. Like what's going to fall apart. And we do that a lot. We'll, we'll kind of go deep into something and just see what falls, you know, what falls down, what's not going to, what, what doesn't, what, what are we missing? And so we experimented as a summer experiment and we just said like, let's figure out what we're, what, what are we wasting time on? What are we not doing? And it turned out to be this super awesome opportunity to explore our own productivity as individuals, how we work collaboratively on the, on the team, what communication needs to be asynchronous? Which communication needs to be in person? Where are we wasting time? Or why are we having these meetings? You know, my, my favorite thing is to cut out meetings. And I love meetings, but like, I hate useless meetings, right? So I love cutting out meetings. And really starting to dissect why. Why are we building this thing that we're doing? Why are we working on this feature? Why are we having this meeting? Why are we doing this thing? Why are these people in the same project together? You know, really, really pushing on ourselves to be more thoughtful. 
And, you know, it's been super successful. I don't know that I'm convinced that a four-day work week is the way to go. Like, I don't know that you can pull off four eights, you know, four eight-hour days successfully. We're going to go on retreat in May and I want to experiment with some other ways. I still believe in the 32-hour work week. I just don't quite know what the next iteration of the experiment is, whether it's shorter days and there's a short part of Friday and whether it's seasonal, you know, like in the summers versus the winters. But we're completely committed to shorter work days. The quality of work has gone up. The uh, ability to think has gone up. Uh, You know, the satisfaction in your personal life has gone up, right? People are able to do things that they don't have, they can't do on the weekends. Everybody's a weekend warrior, you know, especially if you have kids and, and this gives you an extra day. And it's, it's been pretty, pretty spectacular for the team. But I will say that the conveyor team frequently shies away from that because they're so committed to shipping conveyor. And I didn't, you know, I didn't yell at them for that. And there's times when we work longer hours, you know, when they're pushing a deadline or we're dealing with some things. I mean, our customers still come first, so we have to make sure that we're supporting them. But as a whole, the, the push is very much towards this 32-hour work week and how can, we, how can we do more with less? This is something that I struggle with personally. I work a lot. And it's not that I feel a ton of external pressure to work. A lot of it is I just really get out of bed in the morning and enjoy going to work on Indie Hackers because there's so many cool things to do. And I end up, I don't want to say burning out, but definitely pushing myself to the limit, way more than four hours of work a day. Did you find when you made this change that you're really becoming more effective? Do you think that you could have done something like this from the early days? Or is this something that you have to do as a mature company and it's more of like a lifestyle decision? Your drive to work on indie hackers is the drive of an entrepreneur. And I don't think that that's ever... We worked really hard when we were starting out. Like Chris missed one of my best friend's weddings because we were working on stuff. I am fully transparent on the fact that I think entrepreneurs wake up thinking about their business and go to sleep thinking about their project. And there's just no in between. But at a certain point, you grow where you realize that you're not as effective when you're working this hard, right? Your brain isn't as as clear, but also your responsibility shifts so dramatically, right? My job is no longer doing support after I've talked to product and, you know, like my job is now to think for the most part. And I can't think clearly if I'm not, if I'm overworked or my brain's tired, but you know, we all know like the, the brain's a muscle, right? It has capacity, finite capacity. And it's like, you need to recharge it and you need to do all these things. And I just think like the role has shifted dramatically when I had to work, you know, when we worked crazy hours, weekends, nights, I used to remember like we'd go out to dinner, have a glass of wine, I'd come home and do support. There's some customers who have gotten some really interesting support responses from me <laughs> back in the day. All positive. It's just very lovey-dovey for uh, you know an app that hosts your source code. But you know, like we did that because I spent the whole rest of the day doing all the other parts of the business, right? Uh, QuickBooks in the morning, customer support, talking to the developers, you know, all these things. And there's just more and more work. Today, I have an incredible team who does all of that. So of course, I have now the capacity. And to to think more because that's my job to think more. So I I think it changes. You know, I also have two kids and I don't really want to work all day. (laughs) I want to be with them too. So I think that changes. I do think it's the responsibility of the employer to preserve a sane work environment. Like I, I think there's a big difference between the hours an entrepreneur works and I would never tell a founder to work less. I don't think that's fair. But I would absolutely tell a founder to not that it is not okay to push your team to work the same hours that you do. 
Like, I don't think that's fair. That makes perfect sense. Right. Like those are two very different. And I think they get conflated on the internet a lot. My job is to protect my team at all costs, but I'm thinking about my business all day long, all weekend, all night, before I go to sleep, when I wake up in the shower, when I'm working out always. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I am just now getting started hiring and managing my own team. And I will be the first to admit that I'm new to this. I'm strangely kind of resistant to it. I like working alone and Mm -hmm. I suck at hiring and I'm probably a terrible manager. There's a ton of advice out there about hiring and managing people. And when you're new to it, like I am, I think it's a little tough to discern which advice is sort of tried and true and universal and you should resist the urge to buck the trends and which of it is totally up in the air. And it depends on you and how to run your business. You can really do whatever you want. What are your thoughts on this, Natalie, having grown a team to 30 plus people? Uh, just this morning, I was having a call with Chris when I said, we really need to get better at hiring. Um, I don't know. Honestly, Cortland, I think there, I think the most important thing I've learned is to have empathy and to really just try to understand people and that I think, you know, all the sage advice, hire slow, fire fast is probably accurate. I definitely think hire slow would have served me well in previous situations. I think fire fast will never be on my, on my kind of agenda because I don't believe in leaving people out to dry. So, you know, that, that's just not me. I think one of the things that I really learned and this was hard for me to, to understand is we, we used to get a lot of referrals, internal referrals when we were, had an open position. And I always thought that was incredible because I didn't have to go out and hire anybody. I didn't have to use a recruiter. And, you know, if I, you know, somebody I really loved and respected said like, Hey, I have a friend, he'd be great. Awesome. And I turned around one day and realized that I hired all a bunch of the same exact people. Right. And, and, and I had somebody who told me once, like, if you keep only hiring friends of people who work for you, you're going to end up with the same, a very homogenous team. And that, that was really hard for me to realize. And that's still something we're trying to get out of. But I definitely think that, you know, there's much smarter people with more experience in hiring who have talked a lot about how to really make sure you're thoughtful about the types of the, the, the way you hire, the, the types of folks you hire and to make sure you create a diverse environment. But I've always seen tremendous success when we've hired people who came from different backgrounds. And I want as much of that as possible. And so, you know, we really stopped pushing the internal referrals. We still really love when our team refers people, but they go through the same process as all other applicants. So, the, and we do applicants blind for the most part. Like we try not to see anything until after the test project, any identifying information so that we can really kind of put our biases aside. That's been really tricky on a small team to be really intentional. So I've got another one for you. Experience, hiring somebody who's got a lot of experience, knows what they're doing, they've proven that they're good at the job. Versus hiring somebody who's potentially not as experienced, but they're hungry and driven and smart and eager to learn. What's been your experience here with how that works out either way? I think that depends on you and how much time you have. I've seen it both ways. I've realized that I can hire people with who are hungry with less experience. And if you still have to provide them some some support, right? You have to give them something like they're not going to learn everything you want them to learn just by osmosis, right? Like they need to, they need to experience certain things. They need your time and mentorship. They need feedback. You know, they need, they need to know they're on the right track. And if you can't provide that, then that's a problem. I also think, you know, Jason Cohen from WP Engine said something to me a long time. I think he said at a conference too, like, you know, he has this whole thing like A players hire A players, B players hire C, you know, with that whole thing. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting was 
I felt this way, and I know a lot of people do, that you want to really understand the skill before you hire somebody for it. And Jason will say, like, but you're only going to be able to hire somebody as good as you are in the three months you took to, to study this skill. You know, take sales, for example. Like, if I tried to hire somebody based on what I believe sales to be, that's probably a problem. <laughs> so if you're going to hire a salesperson, hire the best salesperson you can afford, an experienced, thoughtful person, so that they can teach you. And it's not going to be, I think, a really great experience to find somebody who's just hungry because who's going to mentor them to get better at that skill if you don't have that skill yourself? So either commit to finding people to help that person, to creating the space for them, to creating the feedback loop internally. But if you're not going to do that, you're just setting them up for failure because they need that, right? Even if they, you had the most smartest person who's like so motivated and so driven... They can go find mentors on their own. Fine. I know there'll be some argument that people have to do it on their own. We can talk about that separately. But like, let's say they found all the greatest mentors in the world. It still has to be your way, right? To some degree, your personality and your acceptance, your approval is really important for them to know they're on the right track. If you don't have the time to give them for that, they're going to fail. They're not going to meet your expectations. So in some roles, I think it's great. In others, I think it's best to follow Jason's advice and hire the best person you can afford so that they can teach you. And there's roles like that right now that we're hiring where we're like, you know what? I don't know nothing about this. And I really want to hire somebody who come in. And during the interview process, I'm like, did I learn something? Like, what did I learn from this person that I didn't know before? Yeah, one second. I'm just over here taking notes, Natalie. I didn't tell you before you came on here, but this <laughs> podcast is just a secret way for me to get advice personalized from all my guests. Uh. <laughs> Let's talk about Postmark. All right. We talked a little bit about Beanstalk. We've talked about Conveyor. In between those two, you launched a different product called Postmark. What's the story there? Well, we were sending a lot of transactional email in Beanstalk. User invites, our product Beanstalk was used by teams who were inviting their customers or their, their colleagues. And so there was a lot of email, commit notifications, a lot of emails flying around and we would get support requests saying, hey, I invited my client and they haven't accepted the invitation. Any idea what's up? And we were like, well, we have no idea because it's just going through an internal mail server and we'd have to like kind of look through the logs and see if we can dig up. Did it bounce? Did it go to spam? We have no idea. And so Chris once again had an idea and he was like, well, why don't we just build an app where you can have visibility? And actually the original tagline for Postmark was because you're blind. Because back then, again, maybe this is a trend for us, right? Back then there wasn't really a lot of services out there like this. You know, we launched, it's an API based service for for sending you know for web apps to send their transactional email and it's you know we're focused on the importance of that communication with the with your customers so we don't really focus on marketing for marketing you know sake right now we're transactional only even to the degree where like we don't let you send any marketing emails but really the focus has been like those communications with your customer are critical and they need to get there quickly. And they're much more important than any other email you send. And so we focus every, all our attention on making sure that that communication with the end user is as effective as possible. So like we're, we have the best deliverability rates in the industry, which is fine. That's not even that exciting. What's much more exciting to me is that we're the fastest. So like people switch to us and they see noticeable improvement in the engagement with their customer. And like that transactional email engagement actually matters because if you, you know, if you're waiting for your Gap newsletter and it doesn't show up at four, it shows up at four thirty, you're not emailing Gap and saying, Hey, where's my newsletter? But if you go to reset your password as you're about to buy a product and that password email doesn't come in, 
from the first time you refresh Gmail, the second time you refresh Gmail, the third time you're like, forget it. You move on to the next thing. You didn't buy the product. That business lost the sale. Those emails have to get there very quickly, not just to the inbox, but fast. And so that's what we focus on. We focus on optimizing to make sure that your emails get there really fast. And that's what we do. We're the fastest to the inbox, the most consistent. And, you know, our, it's growing because people realize the importance of that and, you know, like the brand and like us and all that stuff. And so that's been a really fun project. And most of my team is focused on that product because it's growing and a lot of our future rides on Postmark being super successful. And it's a lot of fun. It's such a great, it's such a great product. We have so much fun on it. One thing that's interesting, interesting to me about Postmark is that it's not in, you know, the most innovative, newest area. There are other companies doing something similar to Postmark and you guys, like you just said right now, you're competing with them. You're describing how you're faster or you're better or you're more reliable. How do you grow when you build a product that has so many competitors? Big 500-pound gorillas. I did a talk once a bunch of years ago that oh, somehow Chris and I just only get into like competing with these massive companies with way more money than we do. It's back to product. I think we just really try to focus on... Who do we build this for? Are we authentic? Like I really think honesty and authenticity truly matter. And we are an extremely authentic company. You know, one of our values for the entire company is transparent communication. You know, we will never say something like, please, we apologize for the inconvenience if we were down. Like what a horrible thing to say. You're down. Of course you're inconvenienced. Like don't say that, you know, or, you know, we'll be honest when we have issues. We, we are honest when we have, in directions we take, we're just a very transparent company because we look at our customers as equal, you know, as partners, as equals, we're, we're, we're all software developers. We're all in this together, you know? And so I think that's really made a difference and we just really focus the product on being great. And we're stubborn, stubborn as shit. I mean, the transaction only thing for the whole time we've been running it, we're still the only ones to do it. I think eventually we're going to probably expand the definition of that, but we have focused on it for so long because we truly believe that this is what's in the best interest of the customer. And it's making us a lot less money than the competitors because all the money's in marketing in bulk, right? I mean, you know, for every 10,000 transactional emails and app sends, they probably send half a million marketing emails. But we've just really committed to being the best for our customer. And that's just been the most exciting part about it. And I, there's nothing more rewarding than somebody switching and saying, wow, why didn't I do this sooner? You know, why, why did I fight it? Like, oh my goodness, my open rates are up and my customers are happier and my support goes down. I think that's one of the most interesting pieces. That's what I get most excited about. It's like, wait, you're actually saving me money because my support's going down? I'm like, yeah, because your emails are getting there and people actually send support requests for these emails. You know, they're looking for them. They're not just like waiting around for them. They need them right now. And if they don't get them, they will email your support and ask them. And so I, you know, I think it's fun solving real problems and really really improving the experience. And so we just get excited about that. And that's where we focus our time. You know, we don't do enterprise sales. We don't have a sales team. We don't do any of that stuff and it makes it feel good. So when you talk about being authentic and sort of baking that into your product, how do you communicate that to customers, especially as an early entrepreneur? Let's say you're building your first product. Should you be writing authentic blog posts or should it be the copy on your landing page or should it be an obsessive focus on making your product you know, expertly crafted? How do you actually get customers to feel this authenticity? You know, I think being vulnerable and transparent is really, really everything. There's some great examples of companies that became wildly successful from their transparent. I mean, Buffer, right? Joel would write all the time. It still does share all his, his, his numbers. Nathan with ConvertKit, you know, shares all his ups and downs. And we weren't actually ever even that transparent. 
think just because Chris and I don't write as much as, as other people do, but those are great examples of just being honest. This is who we are. You know, this is how much money we make and our competitor probably makes more, but who cares? This is, you know, come join our team and fight for us. You're not going to win every customer, but if you're super focused on which you have to be right when you're small is like super focused on just need this one type of customer then it'll work. And I really believe that it all just eventually balloons, right? Enough, if enough people trust you and believe in you, that the bigger companies will come. They always do. And they'll come in the kind of the funniest ways where you'll, you'll see all of a sudden enough people are using your product on their own side projects or on smaller teams and talking about it. And, community, and all of a sudden the big guys come and they're like, Hey, can we, you know, sign a separate agreement? And I'm like, Nope. Don't have lawyers, don't have the money. Your contract is not going to be nearly expensive enough for me to do this. And they come back two weeks later and say, we figured it out. We still want to use the product and we'll just go with your standard terms. I mean, that's amazing, right? And it's not, I'm not being stubborn for, for stubborn sake. It really is way too expensive and complicated for me to run separate agreements. But it's amazing because enough people, you build enough traction, you build enough support, build enough trust by being your authentic, honest self. And I think it just kind of balloons from there. So you guys have built a ton of products. We talked a little bit about Newsberry, Beanstalk, Conveyor, Postmark. I don't think we even have time to go into DeployBot. But I don't know very many people who've built this many products, especially under the umbrella of a single company. So I want to ask you some questions about it, sort of tease out things that you've learned. They're all going to be false dichotomies, but you got to pick one over the other one anyway. So here goes. First one is idea versus execution. Is it more important to choose the right idea for a product to work on or is it more important to subsequently execute really well on whatever it is that you chose? Oh, I want to say execution. I'll say execution because that's the right thing to say, although there's some terribly executed apps who just had a good idea <laughs> and have been successful. But for us, it's execution. Yeah, for us, it's definitely execution. What about automation versus hiring? You guys have built a ton of stuff. You have to maintain it, upgrade it, keep it up to date. How do you manage all of that? Do you automate or do you prefer to hire more people? Automation because we're small and profitable and we can't hire a million people. But I will say process more than anything else. We're just super, you know, super focused on how do we solve problems together so that they're most effective. So like working in small teams as an example, right? You hire more people and then all of a sudden you're wasting all this time in meetings or worse, I think, just trying to get consensus. And so we like cut things down to where people work in really siloed, tiny teams. We strategize together, but then people go down and work in really tiny siloed teams. Their output triples. We might make a few mistakes along the way. It might not be perfect like everybody wants it, but we, we do much better work. Last one, building something totally innovative that solves a brand new problem versus building something in an already proven but maybe crowded industry. Building something unique in a crowded industry, sure. For sure. I think Conveyor is a great example. I mean, we're I mean, basically saying, hey, you don't need GitHub. You don't need Jira. Come hang out with us. <laughs> but we're hoping that we're solving, making it the process 10,000 times better so that it's worth the switch for a small group of people. So, you know, that's definitely, it's, an, it's a different process. It's hopefully valuable for others, but it's definitely in a, in a crowded space. I like that answer because the crowded spaces have already sort of proven that there is a business model. Yep. There. You're not like rediscovering like how what do people find valuable here, and then the unique product is how you differentiate, and it makes it relevant that it's crowded because you're different than the other solutions. Yeah, I mean, everybody like you know some of the most admirable things are like when people go into 
what did I say? What was the Steve Jobs quote? I forget. I don't know the exact quote, but it was like, find the audience that has been, has a horrible experience and make it better. Right. Sometimes you focus and that's probably one of the biggest risks of conveyors. Like there's some pretty solid processes out there already. I'm hoping that we can solve it for a unique group of people, but you know, like people who go into FinTech or, uh, or medical or, you know, like industries that are just so archaic and nothing moves. And those people are miserable playing in software that sucks for work and make them make it better. Right. And then that's like people who have the money want to pay and they're miserable, but, but there's a crowded market, big 500 pound gorillas who feel real comfortable where they are, feel no competition, no pressure. And then you slowly start chipping away at it. I think those are, those are the companies you look at and you're like, wow, you know, so smart when you can solve, you're solving real pain for people, right? People who are struggling with wasted time or energy or just, just ugly software. I hate ugly software. I think there's some real opportunity there to go into like a market that's proven itself and just do something radically different, make it better, 10,000 times better. And it will be really successful. You guys build gorgeous apps and software, which is not easy to do. It's very time consuming. And so it's not hard to believe that you hate ugly software. I hope so. I really do. Oh, and I hate using ugly software. We have this whole discussion on, on, on retreats and the team will want to use something. I'm not going to name names. And I'm going to be like, I'm not logging in there. So you better find a better way for me. I'm so stubborn <laughs> sometimes, but I'm like, I'm not. And like, I'll, we'll have these like philosophical moments where I'm like, this has to be a value. Like we should not, we should not use ugly software. And they're like, no, this is really like, this is going to make us work faster or better, or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I don't care. I hate it. I don't want to use it. It's like, <laughs> And they actually, they appease me sometimes and they'll basically say, fine, we'll just send you reports. You don't have to log in. I was like, fine. As long as <laughs> well, you spent a lot of time focused on building a great culture and setting these values to your company on building a company that I think really exists to improve your employees' lives and their experiences in this world. What are some of the keys to building a good culture that you've learned over time and setting these values that some of us who have never done this can learn from? I think really coming back to understanding why a business exists. And we really lose sight of that. I, I refer to it as like the beast where like you kind of build an insatiable beast. The business is like this insatiable beast. And what happens is like you used to understand the why, but the beast is just so hungry all the time and just wants to get bigger and fatter and bigger and fatter. And so as you're kind of walking this, this path with it, you start to forget the why it existed. And so for us, it was a lot of soul searching. Like, why are we here? Why are we, you know, why are we pushing growth and what's, what's the point of it? Why do we want to grow and why do we want to be bigger and why all these things? And when you start to understand the why, well, for us, we started to understand the why, which is like, well, actually the only reason a business exists is for the people. You know, it's not, it doesn't exist in and of itself. Like it shouldn't exist for itself. Like that doesn't make sense. We've invented it. It's not real right? It just, it's a thing that we've invented to serve a purpose for the human beings around it. And you get to then decide who are the human beings and how do you want it to be, you know, how do you want it to react to those human beings? And so for us, it's this concept, you know, the difference between stakeholders and shareholders. Uh, We look at it and say like, okay, while it exists for humans and those humans are Chris and I as founders, my team, our customers in the community, and how are we impacting all four of those? And in an ideal world, the goal is that we're impacting, like we're spending an equal amount of time looking at all of those. So it's not mostly focused on me and Chris. It's not completely focused on the customer. It's really trying to aim towards this idea that can we build a culture where we are equally balanced to say, how does the business feed 
all four of these kind of constituents, right? All four of these stakeholders. Did something happen to trigger you guys beginning to ask why? Or is this something you guys have always asked from the early days? We hit like a really rough spot. No, definitely not from the early days. The early days were like, just run. <laughs> you don't know why you're running. and You're just, just run. Now we hit a plateau in Beanstalk's growth somewhere in 2010, 2012. I don't remember. And uh, it was just a pretty dark time because at the moment, at that point in, in our business life, Chris and I really couldn't have told you how we got to where we got. We really thought growth happened to us. And so when we hit this plateau, we had no idea what to do. And we started to really follow what other people did, which is not, you know, here's a lesson. Don't do what they tell you to do on the internet because every industry is different. And it doesn't matter if we all run software companies. If you sell to marketers and I sell to developers, I can't do what you do, right? It doesn't matter. So, you know, but we didn't realize that at the time and we just went hardcore and, you know, all the knob turning we could think of. They say charge more. Okay, charge more. 30, 30 day trial, 30 day trial. You know, we just did all kinds of shit. Unsurprising, it is not a fun way to run a business when you're, you know, an entrepreneur and just want to play and be creative. Chris was pretty unhappy. He took a month off and went to hike Bhutan with his dad. I, uh, yeah, we, we were not in a great place. And so the way out of that was a lot of deep soul searching and a lot of like, all right, well, what are we chasing and why? And then, you know, that conversation, and it still happens, you know, those conversations still come up, but the why, why are we doing this personally? Why are we doing this as entrepreneurs, as parents, as, as individuals, right? Like that was really important to understand. And then once that kind of got solidified, all the other pieces fell in place. Then it was like, well, we like to play and be creative. Well, then let's focus on product. You know, let's not focus on the knobs. Let's focus on getting the right mentors. Let's focus on getting the right advisors. Let's think about things with a clear head. And, you know, a foggy head is not a very useful tool. So when you're in this place where you're like, the sky is falling and I don't know how to stop it. And now I have to solve really complicated, difficult problems. It's like those, those solutions are not good at all. And I think really just clarifying the why saved us genuinely. And we did, we did a lot of stuff. We we got a really great advisor. We started going on retreats with some other folks who run really successful SaaS products and doing these like founder retreats and getting the mentorship and the guidance that we, Chris and I needed to hear and see to start kind of shaping what we think wild needed to be at the time. And that's, you know, investing. We, we spent a couple of years investing ahead of growth and Postmark, never done that before, but it was important because we kind of knew the trajectory of where we wanted to go. And that's the kind of thing, but it's really had to start, you know, Simon Sinek, it started with why, <laughs> and it kind of really, really set the direction of where we are currently taking the business. And it's like an exercise we do frequently. Chris and I, at least once a year, go away, just the two of us on like a founder's retreat and like map out why we why we want to do this and for how long we want you know what the goal is for all these different projects that are going on and can we map out 10 years from now and what should that look like for us to still be excited and engaged for the team to be healthy and, and and fulfilled and you know we go through these exercises pretty frequently you mentioned that in the beginning of the company you guys weren't really thinking about why you're just running as fast as you can most of the people listening to the show are at that phase of their company or maybe they haven't even started yet Let's say I was to take everything away from you, Natalie, while it disappears and you are now a brand new founder again and you've got to start a new business. Are you going to just run as fast as you can or are you going to start thinking about why from the get-go? And if the latter, what does that process look like? Well, 
I'd have to start with why because I know better than not to start with why. And so I think for me, it would be a lot of soul searching around what do I want the business to enable me in my life and in the life of the team. And so, you know, it would be if we had to start over, I don't know that I would start a software company. I have no idea. You know, I'm definitely not a serial entrepreneur that way. So I don't have like another idea brewing, another idea brewing. And it would be a lot of like, well, what is the lifestyle that 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 type of business will will provide and both financially and a time consideration and all those things and how fast can we get there? And what kind of business does that mean to grow? You know, is it going to be a sales heavy organization just because of the market it's in or can I innovate? You know, there's going to be a lot of those questions, but I would have to start with why, because I have two kids and it, life is very different than it was 15 years ago when it was just the two of us. And, you know, I was waitressing and we were using that money to live off of while, you know, while all the money was going back into the business and all those things, you know, we can't really pull that off anymore. <laughs> I don't think my kids would like that. So, you know, it, it would absolutely have to start with why. But I, I think, you know, in hindsight, everybody should start somewhere around there because I think it create, the choices become much clearer. You know, if you really want to start a business where you're in control and you can keep it small and what you want is to be able to travel and to, you know, and, and all these things and you can, you can map that out. All of a sudden you have a number to chase, right? Like, you know exactly how much that costs. You also understand what the time requirement will be on you. So let's say you want to be able to travel the world and only work a couple of days a week and all these things. And you probably aren't going to also chase a billion dollar business, right? Like you're, you kind of want to start in those, in that, in that space so that you could say, here's the lifestyle I want to build. And if you want to build a billion dollar business, then you better know that's early so that you don't go into a market that's capped at a hundred million bucks or 50 million bucks. You know, I, I think those things are really important. Let's talk about some of these levers because for a lot of people who are new to this, it's not obvious at all what their early decisions result in, in terms of their lifestyle later on. They're not sure what will cause them to have a sales driven business or what will cause them to have to work 80 hour weeks later on. How do you look at that? What are some of the decisions you made early on in WildBit that have shaped how your life is now? Yes, I think early on, Chris and I knew we didn't want a big company. So we never chased the billion. It's not in our DNA, to be honest with you. And so that was a really nice realization because knowing that meant that we could focus on small individual customers, you know, a, a business built mostly on customers that aren't, you know, a lot of small customers, right? We didn't have to go enterprise. We didn't have to go up market. We didn't have to have custom software. Oh, that was the other one. And the other one was we didn't want to ever build like custom software for rent or for a bunch of different customers. So knowing all of that kind of defined the market we were chasing and also helped us stay level. I'm not chasing my biggest competitors at all because that's not where I want to be. And so it's instead this clarity around, okay, well, how big do I want to get? What does that look like? How big of a market is that? And what does, what, what can I do? Can I get there with my kind of my, my rules, right? We also, also always wanted to be profitable because we didn't want to raise money mostly because I wanted to be able to do things like a 32 hour work week without having to answer to anybody. You know, it's not that I don't, I think VC is evil. I just don't think it was necessary for us. And so knowing that also sets the stage for like, okay, well, if I don't raise money, then you know, I'm kind of on my own in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of my competitors, well, all of my competitors have raised money. And so they have a lot of the connections and the bigger clients that, you know, are all in the fund that now use their services. So you kind of scratch them off your list. I'm not going to do that. So then I'm going to target a lot of the smaller accounts. And what does that mean? How do I, what, what attracts them? And same, I think with lifestyle, you know, if you, there's a lot of people who make a fantastic living 
as solopreneurs, like a spectacular living. And that's really admirable. So like, if that's a thing for you, you got to target that. But me personally, and Chris and I think together, really enjoy working with other people. And I've always wanted to have a team that I can help help develop. Like that's been a big part of who I was. So we knew we were going to be solopreneurs. So we knew we were going to like kind of have a business and, and how big it becomes is a factor of what do we like to do? Crystal likes to dabble in product. He does not want to get so big that he's no longer necessary for product development. That's like a thing. We know that. And we're making sure we don't shy away from that or, or, or chase too big of a growth spurt that he would no longer be kind of touching the product. I, you know, I think those are the kind of decisions for us, but I'll say like genuinely, like some of those you develop as you get older and as you experience more, maybe older isn't even the word. I'm not, I'm 33 years old. So it's not like I'm that old, but you know, I think as you experience more and you start to really develop your own self, you know, now I know that I'm terrible at project management. And so like, <laughs> I shouldn't be running a project, but I can be involved on a project and I can provide a lot of input and saying like, I really need enough time to do other things than other than a while, but I, I do a lot of volunteer work and I, you know, I'm on the board of a, of a preschool and do all these things. And I know that I needed to grow a business that would enable me to have that time and that flexibility. And so, you know, like those are the kind of things that, but I couldn't have told you that five years ago or 10 years ago that I would want to do that. They kind of evolved as I moved through life. Well, I think what you guys have built with Wildbit is amazing. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Natalie. Before I let you get out of here, I'll ask you one more question. And you've already given so much advice to listeners, but for the last time, I'll ask you to give a little bit more advice. The people here are trying to start a company. There's a minefield of mistakes that they might make. Uh, and there's also a huge array of really good decisions that they might make. What's your advice to someone who's considering starting a company? What can they take away from the lessons that you've learned? I wish that I had, I, I wish that I had made connections earlier on. That Chris and I had made connections earlier on with people that we admired who were experiencing a lot of the things that we had experienced. And I think we we really stayed under underground and kind of introverted for a really long time, and lost opportunities to collaborate and just learn from other people. And I will say that the internet is full of really terrible advice. And it's not until you get really inside these businesses that you realize that they all have terrible problems. <laughs> the stuff they write about is best case scenario. They're one thing that's going really well right now while everything else is exploding. And this is even in large companies. And so it's really when you get down into the nuance and the experience share that you can find valuable, I think, perspective, not advice. I don't really look for advice. I look for experiences that then I can apply in my own way to how they fit my experiences. That was a big transformation for us. And it happened late in the game when we really made really personal connections with folks who run businesses and got you know really intimate with their experience, things that they would not write about on the internet. If I started over in any industry, I would seek out as much as possible to build those connections early on because it really makes a difference. It kills me when I read things on the internet, like 15 ways I got to X. And it's like, I love that you got to X, but those 15 ways literally only apply to you. You know, like, cause it's just so nuanced. All of it is so nuanced. There's a lot of time wasted and a lot of heartbreak following in other people's footsteps instead of looking at it and saying, all right, that's cool. How does it apply to me now? My market, my customer, my specific experience, how I run the business, how my products built, what resources I have, right? Like all those things that matter. You should read those experiences as experience share, not as advice. I think that really, really made an impact on us. 
Ironically, that is great advice, Natalie. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the Andy Eckers podcast, sharing your story with listeners. Can you tell people where they can go to find out more about what you're up to and what you're doing with Wildbit? Yeah, I mean, I'm Natalie Nagel on Twitter. Uh, we write about stuff on the Wildbit blog, wildbit.com slash blog. Uh, the products that are all linked there as well. Sometimes we write a lot. Sometimes we stop writing. I think this year we're going to write some more. So, you know, there's more stuff, but there's a lot of great stuff out there just about our experience share, not advice, just our experiences that maybe will help others. Thanks so much, Natalie. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.